And rather than starting in Peter, I actually want to start with Hebrews 12, 14. It says this, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And this passage should immediately grab your attention. Holiness is no small matter. It's not up to personal choice or preference. It's not an optional extra. Without holiness, the writer says here, no one will see the Lord. And every person with half a brain immediately asks, am I holy? Will I see the Lord? Does this describe me or is this someone else? How can I know that I'm holy? For we know that knowing things doesn't make a person holy. For the Bible tells us that knowledge puffs up. Neither does saying that you believe. Because James tells us that the demons believe and they shudder. It is not zeal for God, for the Apostle Paul had plenty of that while he was persecuting the church. It is not moral do-goodness, because the rich young ruler walked away sorrowful. It is not listening to preachers, hanging out with godly people, not even praying or reading your Bible or going to church. A man can do all these things and yet never see the Lord. In all our rushing around, checking boxes and managing the affairs of this life, I think it is worth sitting down for a second and asking the poignant question, what is holiness? For God commands it of us. Hebrews warns us of the dangers of not having it. And Jesus encourages those without it to ask of him and to receive it. So I have three points for you today to help you remember God's gospel truth. And that by the end of it, I hope you will have a much better idea of what holiness actually looks like from the pages of Scripture. So my three points are this. Number one, remember your calling. Number two, remember your story. And number three, remember your king. If you can remember all three of those things, you'll have a good idea of what Peter is talking about here. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, starting from verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. My first point, remember your calling. Now our passage starts with a therefore, and anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask the question, what is it there for? The entirety of the first chapter of Peter here has been describing for us the amazing work of God within our salvation, the amazing work of the Holy Spirit as we are transformed, and how joyful it is to be with God's people, to be a part of His kingdom, even though it may come with trials and it may come with tribulations. And this isn't something new. It's been prophesied and planned from the very beginning. It's been a massive part of God's redemptive story for all of humanity. This is the point that Peter's been making so far. And if this is indeed all true, and if it is true for us, Peter is saying this is how we should respond. Therefore is how he starts. And so we should pay attention. Peter says, prepare your minds for war. The Greek here is literally girding up the loins of your mind. Wonderful phrase. I wish the ESV had just translated it like that. It's a very descriptive way of thinking, especially to the ancient man. If you were getting into a fight and you were wearing a robe, you can guarantee you're going to fall over. 
All that excess materials just get in the way. All you have to do is ask the Scottish. Girding up your loins was a way of tying up your robes. Basically, you'd grab your robes, you'd throw them between your legs, you'd pull them around, and then you'd tie it around your waist. And all of a sudden, you're ready for war. You can get out and fight a battle. And that was a, it was like an idiom that you would say to a man, gird up your loins. And what you were saying, basically, you're throwing the gauntlet down in the middle of the ring and you were like, fight me. Let's get it on. Whether you were doing manual labor or more commonly when you're off to war, you would gird up your loins. And Peter is saying here, since you are so honored to have such an eager audience, both the prophets before you and the angels now, get ready for battle. You have an adventure to set off on, a race to to run, a war to wage, and a great work to accomplish. Just as the traveler, the runner, the warrior, and the laborer would gird up their loins, so also you need to gird up the loins of your mind. All that excess material, gird it up, bring it close, and then get off into battle. Don't let your mind hang loose around you, ready to trip you up and cause you to fall in the fight. Restrain the indulgences and passions of your mind and wield it to its full strength. And he follows it up with this phrase, Be sober-minded. And it literally means don't be drunk. Don't be intoxicated. The state of being sober, we use this word still today. But it carries more than just this idea of being sober. It's being self-controlled, being temperate, not a slave to alcohol, but really not a slave to anything. Whether it's the dopamine drips of binging TV shows or the addictive nature of video games, or pornography, or pleasure food, whatever you run to that trips you up and causes your thinking to be uh, brought to any sort of uh, issues, those are the things you need to be getting rid of. These things can be excessive distractions in the case of entertainment and soul-destroying in the cases of porn and alcohol. See, these carrots that the devil dangles before you of comfort and ease, pleasure, luxury, money, status, are potent tools in the armory of the enemy. If you are off to fight a battle, the best way to win that battle is to not even fight it in the first place. If you can get those soldiers to stay at home, you have already won. And that is exactly the play that is being run in Australia. You cannot hope in these things, your pleasure, your comfort, For these are thorns which grow up around a Christian, Jesus says, and chokes them out, and they are unfruitful. So these things promise salvation, but deliver misery. They promise pleasure, but taste of wormwood. These things cannot save you, and they will not deliver on their promises. They destroy a legacy, ruin a family, tarnish a church, and cripple whole communities and cities. You put a man to sleep, you will defeat him. Peter says this instead, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first step to holiness is to remember your calling, who you are, what you were called to be. You were called first to believe and trust in Jesus and him alone. We are a reformed church. Some of you guys may know that. And we believe in the five solas. And one of the things that you can learn about the five solas is that we trust in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone, in Scripture alone. 
The, we believe that these things are the only thing we need. We don't need anything extra. We only need Christ and the things that He gives to us. Nothing else will feed us or satisfy us or quench our thirst. Nothing else will deliver us so complete, uh, deliver so completely on their promises than our Savior Jesus does. The Greek here literally says, set your hope on the grace being brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace is not merely the salvation being brought to you in the future, but the grace offered to you from the moment that Jesus was first revealed in the world. The grace that was present. The grace and truth that came when Jesus was incarnated. The prophets yearned to see this salvation, but for us, He's revealed, right? The angels long to look into this, but for us, we can see it. His kingdom is growing slowly but surely across the world and it is in Him that we have set our hope. And the first battle that you must fight, brothers and sisters, in this world is the fight for your own soul. The first place you must wage war is between your ears. How can you disciple others if you yourself are not a disciple of Christ? How can you urge others to hope in Jesus when your hope is in everything but Him? How can you impress upon the ch your children the joy it is following Jesus if they never see your love for Him? The first fight for holiness is the fight of self-governance. Governing yourself. Before you even think of changing the world or even changing your spouse or family, which it's a lot easier in our minds to go change other people, but the hardest thing of all is to change yourself. And the first step you need to do is to remember who you are. Remember your calling. You have been born again, Peter says, to a living hope, to an unfading inheritance and a genuine faith. If you trust in Jesus, this is who you are. And remember that what you are called to is to a hope in Jesus. And my second point is this. Remember your story. Let's pick up in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We have a new family now. We have a new way of life. We are part of the household of God, something that was a drastic turning point in your story, a drastic turning point in your walk with God. It was the most defining event that has ever happened to you, whether you were raised in a Christian home or whether you have walked in the world for 40 or 50 years. Peter is urging the churches, live as obedient children. For all of us who belong to Christ are indeed the children of God. To live into the story and identity as having been adopted into the family of God and regenerated by His Holy Spirit. You can't forget who you are now in Christ. And it can be so easily uh, done to slip back into that old self. I mean, if I'm honest, that old guy seems to be always at my right hand, ready to slip me up, ready to trip me up, bring me back that old self that I thought was crucified. And yes, indeed, that old self has been put to death but I know where he's buried. And sometimes I can grab the shovel. Peter says, don't be conformed to that old way of life. He calls it here, your former ignorance. 
And it was that ignorance, that lack of knowledge that came when we didn't know God in a salvific way. Before we were illuminated to the truths of the gospel by the Holy Spirit, we were a different person then. We obeyed the desires of the flesh. We gave into the passions and cravings of our bodies. We obeyed the lies of the world and we were living in the deceit of the devil until God came into the picture and he fixed it, didn't he? It wasn't like we were walking down, we saw that we were in a bad situation, we cleaned our life up, and then we're like, God, are we good now? That is not what happened. I mean, Christian, why on earth would you want to go back to that guy? Why on earth would you want to go back to that girl? That former ignorance, that person you were before you knew God. You can sometimes put on rose-tinted glasses and you can look back to the good times that you had before you knew Jesus and you think, oh man, it actually was kind of good back then. Things actually worked out pretty well. It's lies. If you think about it deeply, you can remember what it was like to have no hope, to be adrift, lost in an absurd world. And yet, if we are passive and if we do nothing and we live in apathy to the truth, where do we find ourselves drifting? We might not dig up that old man, but you're apathetic, right? You don't do anything. You just sit around, you twiddle your thumbs, you're waiting for something to happen. Do you drift into holiness? Is that your natural course? Do you just like sit around and all of a sudden holiness falls into your lap? It's not true. That never happens. We drift back into our old self. That's why Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready to do battle in the first battlefield. And that's your own heart. Take dominion of your own heart. Teach it what to love. Do not let your heart lead you. It's one of the biggest lies you see in our culture. They say, follow your heart. I don't, the Bible actually says something interesting about that. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So if anyone tells me, oh, you know, man, just follow your heart, bro. It's going to work out well. You have the Bible's express permission to say, nah, my heart is a psychopath. My heart is messed up. If I let him be in charge of my life, I would be in a never-ending, self-destructive downward spiral. That guy made a massive wreckage of everything. Have a listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 4-6. Paul says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What a passage. I feel like Christians need to spend a bit more time in that passage, don't they? Our job as Christians here is to bring everything underneath the rule and reign of Christ. We know Jesus is ruling at the right hand of the Father and every square inch of this universe belongs to Him. And the weapon that God has given to us are not guns or swords or missiles, but truth. God has handed to us the sword of the Spirit, which Ephesians 6 calls the Word of God. And we wield that truth with ferocity and precision. And what is the first place that you should point that weapon that God has given to you? Yes, at your own heart. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. As soon as anything pops into your head, 
whether evil thoughts, feelings, passions, take those things captive. Speak truth to them. Preach the gospel to yourself. Who is in control? Whatever little thought pops into your head or the Holy Spirit. Will you wield that sword? When you are good at allowing the knowledge of God in His Word, in His truth, in His Son Jesus to so permeate your life, you'll realize that you have taken the most significant step in your journey towards holiness. For that is the biggest step you can take. That is to take every thought captive. That is to decide that you and your eternal life and who you are and the way that you live and all your conduct will be like your holy King, Jesus Christ. That's my third point. Remember your king. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And here, Peter gives us the entire definition we need to be holy. All the necessary information we need in order to be holy is given to us right here. And that is to be like our great God and King, Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. J.C. Ryle is best on this topic. He says, Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, according to the way we find God described in the pages of Scripture. It's not a nebulous idea. It's not ill-defined. It's not vague. We have the very judgments of God in your hand. This means that Christians hate what God hates. We love what God loves. We measure everything according to the standard of His most holy word and law. The most holy person you will ever meet is the person who most entirely agrees with God. They will seek to root out every known sin. They will seek to grow in every known commandment. They will bend towards God. They will desire to do His will above all else, just as the Lord Jesus did in His ministry. They fear displeasing God more than displeasing anyone else. They love His pleasure more than the praise of anyone else. They agree with Paul in Romans 7.22 when he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Or how about the psalmist? In Psalm 119, verse 128, Therefore I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. A holy person will forgive just as Christ forgave. They will walk in love just as Christ loved us. They are marked by humility just as Christ made himself of no reputation and humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. They are radically generous just as Christ made himself poor to make others rich. Jesus acted with tenacity and boldness and was uncompromising in denouncing sin and hypocrisy. He would not even let his earthly family get in the way of doing the will of God. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. John says in 1 John 2.6, Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This man or woman will be marked by meekness, patience, gentleness with the weak, self-control. They will rule their tongue and they will rule their temper. They will deny the flesh, seeking to do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, where Paul says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, 
lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. They will love their neighbor as themselves. They will hate all lying, slandering, cheating, dishonesty. They love Jesus and they love his bride, the church. And they want nothing more than the increase of his rule and reign here on earth. And their greatest prayer is, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Both in themselves, in their families, in their communities. You might be feeling, whoa, that was a lot of stuff to just throw at me, Cody. Listen, by no means is the holy person free from sin. Not at all. It is in fact their greatest sorrow is their continuing sin. Their greatest sorrow is their body of death who tries to draw them back any moment. The holy person is not at peace with sin. Rather, they hate their sin and long to be liberated from its cold clutches. As the great John Owen says, I do not understand how a man can be a true believer unto whom sin is not the greatest burden, sorrow, and trouble. Yes, indeed, the holy man or woman is not perfect, sometimes far from it. It takes time. The work of sanctification is gradual, but it is an ever-increasing work as the Spirit brings more of the whole person underneath the whole of Christ. Remember that. Now, I feel like we know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Will holiness save you? Well, of course not. But why not? Well, let me ask you a question. Can your personal holiness cause your sins to be forgiven? Can your holiness cover your sin? Can your holiness absorb the wrath of God? Can your holiness pay back all your debts and transgressions? I think we know the answer to that. We will not pay back even a single dollar. Not a single amount can we pay back to God for any amount of effort and strength and strain we put in to earning our holiness. Even our best deeds are tainted with sin. Paul says in Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. See, we are not called to be holy in order to be saved, but rather, if indeed you are saved, you will be holy. Do you notice that key difference? Titus 2.14 Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see that? Purify for himself a people for his own possession. The purpose of the gospel was not merely salvation, but redemption. It wasn't just rescue, but restoration. Now we need this power at work within us, or else we will never grow in, God, uh, in holiness. Well, what do I mean? If you decide in your own strength to throw yourself into the work of growing in holiness, you can be guaranteed to fail. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You can't build this house alone. You cannot grow in any sense in your holiness without the help and assistance of God. By His grace, if you do indeed grow in your holiness, you can't take any of the credit because the striving and the working towards holiness was by His hand and not yours. It's it's this profound, almost paradox within the Scriptures. Listen to the way Paul puts it at the end of this passage. 
It's, it's something that I've written down and I repeat to myself a lot because I need to hear this over and over again. Have a listen. Paul says, Him we proclaim, that is Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. What a, what a verse. How do you even unpack that? For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. I don't know about you guys, but I would much rather have God powerfully working within me as I toil for the kingdom rather than toil on my own. In fact, it's madness to throw yourself into this gargantuan task without the infinite power of our great God. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to be a new creation? Brothers and sisters, you must begin with Christ. Remember your King. You will make no progress in holiness until you realize that you are not cut out for this work. You need to come to the Lord and you need to say to Jesus, Lord, save me from all my sin. Give me the Holy Spirit that you promised to give to all who ask. Make me holy by your strength and might and not my own. Train me to follow your will wherever it leads me. Hearing this message is not enough. You need to speak to the Lord and you need to ask him for this holiness that only he can give. J.C. Ryle says, Jesus is the manna you must daily eat, the rock from which you must daily drink. His arm is the arm on which you must lean daily as you come up out of the wilderness of this world. You must not only be rooted, you must also be built up in him. Would our church possess a genuine holiness that is not mere talk, but reality? Would we all feel a keen desire to grow day by day in our holiness? If we dedicate our remaining years on this earth to a pursuit of sincere holiness, how glorious will those years be? As it says in Hebrews 12:14, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive, brothers and sisters, but not in your own strength, the strength Jesus provides. Would you ask this of Jesus now? For the strength that only he provides. And then I'll finish us with prayer. Father, where if you were not on our side, all our striving, all our toil, we would be in a desperate loss. And Father, you are a worker of amazing miracles. And you have turned dead, cold flesh into living spirit. I pray for my brothers and sisters here who have gotten apathetic in their personal holiness who have not strived for the holiness without which they will not see you. Help us, Lord, to toil with all the energy that you provide us, all the energy with which you powerfully work within us. For, Lord, we confess that if you are not in this work, it will not be built. 
It will not last and it will not stand the test of time. Father, we throw ourselves upon your grace and mercy and we acknowledge our constant need for you every day, our complete uselessness apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. Father, I want to particularly pray for those who feel weak, who have walked in a lot of disobedience, who have walked in a lot of apathy, and who have loved the gods of comfort and ease more than they have loved the Lord Jesus. For those people, Lord, I pray that you would work powerfully within them, that they would strive for a personal holiness, that you would stir up the emotions and affections of their heart so that they would leave the passions of their former ignorance and pursue the holiness that only you can give. For Lord, you call us to be holy and you demand nothing less of us than holiness. And Father, I pray that this would be a holy church and that we would grow all the more in the grace that is provided by your son, Jesus. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.